Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Brothers and sisters, we sang of the wise men. Now let us read of the wise men. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, and we'll be reading the first 12 verses. Let's hear God's powerful and errant word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, how we thank you for your word and for how it shows us of our risen, reigning Christ, of his great love for us and sacrificing himself for us and in giving us new life. So we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, that you would bless us, that you would open up our hearts to understand afresh the wonder of your grace that you have shown to us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, Many, many years ago, I made a terrible mistake. We lived near a Walmart that was open 24-7. So I had the brilliant idea that I could shop for Christmas late at night and avoid the maddening crowd. I arrived at 12 a.m., and lo and behold, what to my wondering eye should appear but hordes of shoppers buying gifts for those dear. Undaunted, I sounded the battle cry and charged through the pillaged aisles. 
And having found those unique gift items, I dashed to the checkout line, and there I waited and waited and waited and waited with 12 other people who had the same idea as me. My nerves on edge, my blood pressure rising, I felt myself morphing into Scrooge. Bah, humbug. Why do we need to buy Christmas presents anyway? Who started this gift-giving tradition in the first place? Then I remembered the wise men who brought gifts to the Christ child. And like a star rising in the east, it dawned on me. Is it because of the wise men that I'm standing here late at night along with half the town in a checkout line at Walmart? Well, today's scripture reading in Matthew is the familiar story of the wise men coming to see the Christ child. The account of the wise men has been depicted over the centuries in art, in music, and in film. And many traditions have developed from it. Yet we wonder why was it told in the first place? What was Matthew's purpose in recording this mysterious bit of history of men from a foreign land coming to see the new king? And what meaning does it have for us today, over 2,000 years later? So to answer these questions, we will take a journey through Matthew's account. And we will see three things that bear light on this historic event. A false king, an astonishing star, and discerning gifts. But let's first consider some background. Who were these mysterious magi? Matthew doesn't give us much in detail. We don't know exactly where they came from, the exact number, or their names. Later church tradition changed them from wise men into kings, specifically three, because of the three gifts that they gave. And they named them Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But Matthew leaves out any such detail and calls them simply magi from the east. Now, the word magi is where we get the word magic or magician, and in Matthew's day, the term was associated with those who dabbled in in sorcery and the occult. However, the magi who visited Christ were not so much sorcerers, but they were most likely from the priestly class of the East, who were skilled in astronomy and astrology and who interpreted dreams and prophecies and stellar events for the royal court. They were truth seekers who were well versed in the areas of science, agriculture, math, and history. And because of their vast knowledge, they became prominent, powerful advisors to kings. Well, where were they from? Well, no one is sure. They could have been from Persia or Arabia or quite possibly Babylon. Why Babylon? Well, there existed in Babylon a large Jewish population who had settled and remained there from the time of the Babylonian captivity. So it's quite possible that these magi would have had access to the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah through the contact, their contact, with the exiled Hebrews. 
They may have shared in the Jewish expectation that one day, one day God would send a Savior who would establish a universal kingdom. In fact, the whole world seemed full of expectation that a mighty deliverer would come out of Israel. One example is the Roman historian Suetonius, who, speaking about the time of Christ's birth, wrote, There had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. So there was this expectation that a powerful ruler would arise. So when the star appeared, a bright shining light never seen before that lit up the heavens, the wise men surmised that a king had been born. For such a stellar sign was regarded as a herald of an event of great magnitude. We can imagine them discussing this cosmic event. Look, look, the star rising over us. Could it be that the prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures, from Numbers, has been fulfilled? The prophecy that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Yes. The prophecy has been fulfilled. The star which the Hebrew scriptures foretold has appeared, and the king for whom it represents must have been born. It is his star proclaiming his birth. And did not Isaiah prophesy about the king saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Well, then let us go and see this newborn king. And being truth seekers, they set out on the dangerous, arduous journey across the wilderness, braving the elements and the threat of attack by bandits to reach Jerusalem, laden with presents to present the king. And there were certainly more than three. In fact, there was probably a considerable number giving them that they would need a large entourage to protect them from bandits. And being wise men, they went to the capital city of, of Jerusalem, logically assuming that the new king would be there in the royal residence. But when they reached Jerusalem, they were in for a surprise. What? No banners? No celebration? No one seemed to know anything about this new king. Instead, they were confronted by an old king, King Herod. And they must have wondered, what is going on? Were we wrong? Maybe we weren't as wise as we think. Now, Matthew mentions this encounter with Herod for several possible reasons. One reason would be to establish a time frame for Jesus' birth, which may have been around 6 B.C., since we know that Herod died in 4 B.C. But I believe Matthew is also making a contrast between Christ the King and Herod the Great, a contrast between a true king 
and a false king, as well as a contrast regarding the different reactions to Christ's birth. After all, Herod was a false king. Herod was appointed king of Israel by the Roman Senate in recognition for his able leadership and support of Rome. The Romans bestowed on him the title Herod the Great because he was the first to establish peace in Palestine. He also welcomed Roman culture and pursued grand building programs, including palaces, pagan temples, and the completion of the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Well, he may have been great in the eyes of the Romans, but he was greatly hated by his Jewish subjects. They despised him for many reasons. For one, he had no royal lineage. lineage. He was not of the line of David and therefore not a legitimate heir to the throne. In fact, he was a half-Jew and half-Edomite. His ancestry went all the way back to Esau. So the Jews had someone on their throne who was not a descendant of David, the chosen king, but of Esau, who was rejected by God. He was not only greatly hated, but greatly feared, for he was great in cruelty. Near the end of his life, he became paranoid. If he believed someone was his rival, he had them killed. Those who were his victims of paranoia included his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law and his grandfather, and his brother-in-law, who was appointed high priest. And given Herod's, Herod's ruthless behavior, it's not surprising at all that Emperor Augustus remarked, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. No wonder then that uh, hearing the news of a new king, that a new king was born, that Herod would be troubled, as verse 3 indicates. His worst fear had been realized. The Davidic throne would be reestablished, and Herod, the imposter, would be deposed. And no wonder all of Jerusalem was troubled too, knowing what Herod was capable of and realizing that no blood would be spared in an effort to destroy his rival, the true king. And in verses 4 through 8, we see accurately how they accurately depict the false king's cunning and deceit how he uncovers that Babylon, uh, that Bethlehem is the location of Christ's birth by consulting with the scribes. And then he tricks the Magi into being his unwitting informants by telling them that he wants to go and worship the child too. Well, having seen the character of the false king, let's turn our attention to the true king who the wise men searched for. And as we read further into the account, in verse 9, we learn that a star miraculously appeared once again to them, directing them to the true king. And they found him not as an infant cradled in a manger in a stable bear, but notice that Matthew records that they found the Christ child, not an infant, at the house of Mary and Joseph. So Jesus would be about two years old at this time. 
So the wise men's long journey had ended with joy and worship in finding the true king as they followed this astounding star. Now, what was this star? Well, it was no ordinary star. It had to be extraordinary, some kind of extraordinary occurrence to warrant the wise men's attention and interpretation that a king had been born. And what they saw must have been pretty spectacular. And it first appeared at the birth of Christ, only to disappear and then reappear again as they were headed to Bethlehem. It was seen by them in the east, but it seems that no one noticed any such sign in Jerusalem. So what was this astounding, astonishing star that they saw? Well, there are many theories. It could have been a, they, they theorize it's a meteor, Halley's Comet, a supernova. Some believe that it was a planetary conjunction involving Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus. However, all of these explanations have problems with them. The best ex- explanation, I believe, is that it was a supernatural event, a supernatural manifestation of God's glory. This would be similar to the Shekinah glory by which the Lord appeared as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire at night to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. And what seals it is the direction in which the star or guiding light moved. Stars move from the east to the west in the sky, but this star, this star moved from north to south. So it was no ordinary star. Well, whatever it was, the star that led the truth seekers led them to truth himself. And when these truth seekers found the Christ child, verse 11 records that they worshipped, they worshipped the true king. Now, why would they worship this king as if he were God? What did they know? How wise were these wise men? Did these truth seekers realize what kind of king he is? How much did they understand about this king they worshipped if they knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning his birth? Did they also understand the prophecies concerning the Messiah's mission? We might wonder because of the gifts they gave him. How wise were they in their gift-giving? After all, when you want to give the perfect gift to someone, it requires that you know something about them. And their gifts were discerning gifts, ones which illuminated who this true king was and what he would do. They gave him gold, a gift fit for any king, but especially this king whose reign would be unparalleled and unlike any other. For in verse 6, we read that this king would shepherd his people Israel. And unlike the false king Herod, who oppressed his people with heavy taxes to finance his own grand building projects, and who used his kingdom for his own advantage, this true king, Christ, would rule like a shepherd who tends his flock. He seeks the good of his people 
and cares for them. He also will sacrifice for them. He came to serve and not to be served. And so this brings us to the next gift, frankincense. Why is frankincense significant? Frankincense is a costly resin which is fragrant when burned. The Lord had directed the Israelites to use it in the worship in several ways. For example, it was burned to make a fragrant aroma during the worship proceedings on the Day of Atonement. That special day, once a year, when the high priest would enter the most sacred area of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, which represented God's presence with his people. And it was on that day that the high priest made an offering for the sins of the people by sacrificing a goat. And according to Leviticus 16, before the high priest could offer the blood of the slain animal before the Ark of the Covenant, he had had to enter the Holy of Holies with a censer of incense and to bring it before the mercy seat of the Ark. And the smoke from the incense rose up before the mercy seat, symbolizing the prayers of the high priest and the people before the Lord. So incense was associated with intercessory prayer. The prayers of God's people were lifted up before him in their fellowship with him as their sins were atoned for by the sacrifice of another life. So incense was an important part of worship and sacrifice, and it could only be offered on the Day of Atonement by the high priest alone, since he was the designated mediator between the Lord and his people, the one who represented sinful people before a holy God, making sacrifice for their sins on their behalf, that they could have the judgment for their sins removed and have fellowship with the Lord. And sacrifice was needed in order to approach a holy, just God, for who could approach a holy, just God on his own or her own merit? Brothers and sisters, we can't. Our sin separates us from having a relationship with a holy, just God who is perfect and pure. And the consequence of our sin is death. Death is the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against God who has given us life. So we are all under a death sentence, physical death, and eternal separation from our Creator. And the Lord instituted these Old Testament sacrifices to serve as a reminder that the death of another is needed to pay the debt that I owe for my sin. And that when that life was given, God's justice was met and my judgment would be removed so that I could have fellowship with a holy God. And it was all, all done through a high priest, through a mediator. And all, all of that was wrapped up in the discerning gift of frankincense. This precious gift spoke volumes 
about what Christ would do. That he would not only be a king, but a high priest who would be a mediator between sinful people and a holy God making atonement for them. And the unique priesthood Christ would have is alluded to by the last gift, myrrh. Myrrh is a costly substance used in embalming the dead to delay decay. Now, a gift that inferred death is a strange gift to give anyone, let alone a king. But it was the perfect gift for this king. For this king was a priest who would offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people, not a sacrifice of blood of goats. No, he would sacrifice himself for the sins of the people. For as John 10 states, Christ was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And in Hebrews 9.26 we read, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And on the cross... The Lord Jesus was acting as the high priest who offered himself as the perfect, complete, and final sacrifice for all of our sins. So when the Magi offered these sage gifts, did they have any idea that this child would be a priestly king who would offer his own life dying for the sins of his people, taking upon himself the punishment that was due them? Did the Magi know that Christ was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53? That he would be wounded for our transgressions, that he would be bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement for our peace was upon him, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all? Did these Gentiles from another land read Isaiah 52, verse 15, and see themselves in it when it speaks of the Messiah who will sprinkle the nations with his blood, paying the debt for their sin? And by worshiping Christ the King, whose birth was a fulfillment of many prophecies, did they themselves know that they were filling, fulfilling prophecy? that the Gentiles would come to faith in the Messiah and be included in God's kingdom along with the Jews. For example, in Genesis 12.3, the Lord proclaims in his covenant to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Through Abraham's lineage would come the Messiah who would bless the nations, for the covenant promises were not just for Abraham's children, but for the Gentiles as well. And then in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, the Lord promised to send the one who will be a light for the Gentiles, who will release those who are in darkness. And then in Psalm 102, verse 15, it points to the true king, that the nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will reveal, revere your glory. So when the Magi came and bowed down and worshipped Christ, was that not the beginning of Christ's worldwide worship predicted in the Old Testament? It's why Matthew includes this historic event in Christ's early life. 
to show Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy concerning Messiah's worldwide reign and redeeming reach to all the nations. This account is like a curtain being pulled back just a bit, illuminating for us by a shining star the coming attractions of the Messiah who brings salvation to every nation. For indeed, the Magi seeking Christ were only a foretaste of what was to come. After Christ's resurrection and ascension, Gentiles came to faith, saving faith in him starting with Cornelius in Acts 10. And it continues today in virtually every tribe and tongue which professes the name of Christ. We see the faith of these Gentiles who were willing to risk all to see the Messiah. It contrasts their reaction to others in the account, such as the response to the scribes to the news of Christ's birth. It was complete indifference. They heard the Messiah was born. They knew where to look for him, but they did not pursue him, unlike the wise men who traveled many hard miles to seek truth by seeking the Savior. And so it is today that many are indifferent to the claims of Christ. They acknowledge him as prophet, or they might acknowledge him as a teacher of great ethical truth. They may see him as a political hero, or just one of the many roads that lead to heaven, equally valid and equally true, yet they do not closely examine the claims that he is the Messiah. They do not investigate the validity of his resurrection or his claim that only through him can one have eternal life, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. There was indifference to Christ, and then there was the reaction of Herod, hostility to Christ. He plotted to destroy him because he threatened his position and power. He was just the first of many such leaders who have sought to eradicate Christ. We naturally think of Lenin and Stalin and Mao and other dictators and tyrants who tried to eradicate the truth of Christianity from their country, claiming boldly that God is dead and that Christianity is a worthless religion that only enslaves people with superstitious belief. And yet, like Herod, they failed. They are dead, and Christ and his church live on. Well, moving from a worldwide level to a more personal level, others may be hostile to Christ because if he is the Son of God, then he threatens our sense of autonomy and self-determination. This reality, his reality, rivals the throne of our lives. If Christ is king, and he is, then he has a claim over my life. I cannot live as I please, doing what is contrary to his will, living as if he didn't. So what is the answer to this gnawing reality of Christ's supremacy? But to dismiss him, or to try to eradicate him, but we can't. It's a losing battle because his kingdom is an everlasting one and he will always reign as king wherever we, wherever we, whether we acknowledge his rule or not. 
One day Christ will come again to judge the world and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for those who were indifferent or hostile to him, it will be a fearful confession. They will have to acknowledge what they sought to deny, that Christ is king over all. And a life apart from Christ or autonomy from him only leads to eternal doom because Christ is eternal life and the giver of life. So to be apart from him is to be without life and light itself, but to experience eternal darkness and despair. And what a tragedy it would be to miss the beauty and wonder of God's astounding grace, which we celebrate at Christmas. That the timeless, eternal Son of God enter time. That the incarnate, infinite God took on our frail humanity. That the sovereign, all-sufficient Son became dependent, needing to be fed and clothed and cradled in Mary's arms. Why? Why would our God humble himself so? Out of love he became like his creation, yet without sin, so as to walk a perfect path of obedience that led to a cross, where the high priestly king would offer that final full sacrifice himself, bearing the justice that we deserved to wash away all of our sins by his blood, so that we could be with him now and for all eternity. So such a gracious king is worthy of our heart's devotion. And how tragic it would be for us to not bow our hearts and our lives to this great king. So if you are a truth seeker today, I would implore you to consider the claims of Christ as the promised Messiah. Are they true? Are they really real? Or is this some fantastical fable made up by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and others, men who gave their very lives to share this good news of Christ who has come to earth? Wisely weigh the evidence and see that this is what is really real. And when you do, do as the Magi did. Bow your heart and worship him. Embrace him by faith, trusting that he is your savior, your mediator, and your sovereign king who has graciously given you new life, the light of his word, and eternal life, the richest of gifts. This morning we have seen how wise men, how wise they were in giving gifts to this priestly king which spoke of the gift that he would be to all who trust in him. Let's pray together. O oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your Son and the eternal life that we have in him. And we pray that all here would know him and love him and worship him for who he is, the risen Christ, our King and Savior. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.